Well, good morning. And I tell you, it is a great privilege to serve as a pastor at this church. And uh, I have a deep amount of love for all of you and uh, for the privilege it is to to be a part of a church that partners with other churches to advance the kingdom of God. And we're not in competition. We're part of the same body. It's good stuff. Well, yesterday was the was the first day of the new year, and I find that there's a couple of groups of people when it comes to January 1st, the new year, and I'm in one group, which is uh, the group that thinks a lot about something being new. It's the first day of a new year. There's resolutions to be made. There's there's a, a turning point to happen. Some of you are, are like me and that you think about, man, what needs to change? What needs to be different? What what are some things that uh, I need to turn away from or turn toward and, and resolve to do? And then others of you, when it comes to a day like yesterday, for you, it was Saturday. Right? The fireworks Friday night just disturbed your sleep. I don't know what was going on in my neighborhood, but uh, it exploded that night. Well, regardless of which group you would find yourself in, what we're going to talk about today is of first importance. So it's timely that we would talk about it at the beginning of a new year to talk about the most important thing. We're going to look at a passage and I invite you to turn with me to the book of Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures in front of you, we have some on the back tables. And I would just encourage you to go and make sure that you have a Bible with you. I don't care if you're using your iPhone or if you have it in paper. They still make Bibles in paper these days. And um, I would encourage you to have this because we're going to look at a passage and walk through it verse by verse. And so if you don't have a copy of the scriptures with you, go take it. We have it for you. And if you don't have a Bible, please keep it. And uh, it's our gift to you. So um, please be the first to be brave enough to go get that because you'll want to have it with you. You know, when we think about uh, the new year and, and making a commitment, uh, you look at this picture on the screen. This guy can't change his mind, right? I mean, there's not a, oops, can I? Oh, right? I mean, there's only one thing that's going to happen for this guy. He's going to go down. That's his option because he's already taken the leap. He's already made the jump. I was going to tell you that that was me from our summer vacation, but, ah, you know, resolve not to lie. So I uh, won't, won't do that. But, uh, but look at that. I mean, just think about the commitment it takes to do that. I mean, he is going to trust that he will pull some kind of cord on his pack and or that there's some deep pool of water that is off the shot there. Um, but he's taken his leap. You know, we uh, when it comes to faith, we're called to make a commitment that we're to take a leap into trusting Christ. And we're going to be looking over the next four weeks at at four key faith commitments. But we're going to start today with the most important thing, the most foundational thing, and it's a very personal thing. 
So the things that you hear, this is for you to internalize. I can commit to all kinds of things other than following Jesus. In fact, it's a major issue in my life. I identify so much with the hymn of Come Thou Fount. Where in the final verse it says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. There's something in me that is prone to be pulled away from true north. A compass that points to Jesus Christ that gets pulled away to other things. Sinful things, entertaining things, lazy things. Prone to wander. And this is an issue that we share, we shared with with all generations who have gone before us, that, that really it comes down to we commit to something over following Jesus. Something gets in the way, whether it's an ideology or it's something that we have added to the Christian faith that gets in the way of us following Christ or gets in the way of the simple message of the gospel. It could be a practice. It could be a series of decisions that you've made. It could be a behavior that has crept into your life that is something over following Jesus. There's actually a term for this. If it's an ideology or a behavior that, that comes in place of Christ or is added to faith and it's called heresy. We don't use that word so much. I bet I'm the first person in this room to use it in 2011. I could be wrong, but it's a pretty safe claim. But a heresy is, is, is something that taints or twists the faith. And groups of people have done this, but the interesting thing about heresy is that often it springs up from within the church itself. It comes from within. We look at a group of of people that uh, we find in the book of Colossians. They're called the Colossians because they live in a city called Colossae. When Paul traveled through Asia, which is modern Turkey, he stayed in a city center called Ephesus. And that was his home base for a, for a couple of years where he shared the gospel and made disciples and helped found churches. And he led a man named Epaphras to the Lord. And Epaphras then took the gospel message and he went to Colossae. And he began planting the seeds of faith in that community. Now he he followed the pattern that, that Jesus laid out for his disciples and his apostles to do. And that was when they entered a town, they would go first to a Jewish synagogue. And there they would proclaim Christ first to the Jews. They would teach Christ to them. And as the gospel may have been received by some or rejected by some, they would then go to Gentiles who lived in the region And share Christ with them because Christ is for everyone. And in those groups of people, when you, if if you think about being a Jewish 
believer, you have spent your entire life practicing important traditions to your family and to your faith. Things like circumcision on a specific day in the life of a baby boy would have to happen if you were in a Jewish family. Dietary restrictions were mandatory. It was part of following the law and the code to sustain a relationship with God were those things. And so when the gospel came to them, they didn't have a fully formed theology. If you were a believer in the city of Colossae, you were lucky if your local synagogue had a copy of the Old Testament scriptures. They would, they would gather around the teaching from Jonah and the Proverbs, which we're in Proverbs 2 today in our L3 journals as a church. So you would walk into the synagogue and someone would read from Proverbs 2 and you would talk about that. They didn't have 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. And so they didn't have a fully formed doctrine that was nice and clean and tight. Things were developing. And so it was very easy for other ideas to creep in. And this was their heresy that, that crept in. Simply put, um, is that... Jesus was not enough. That was kind of the first initial heresy that came into the church. That Jesus was not enough. You know, that was the central message of the gospel that it was only through Christ that they could have the relationship with God that they desired. It was only through him. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me is what Jesus said. But the earliest temptation of heresy was to add something to Jesus. Especially in that city, there was this, there was a commentators and scholars have, have, um, have found from historical writings that there was a, a veneration of angels, that there was some special knowledge that God would have for you as a believer. If you communed through an angel or worshiped to an angel or prayed through an angel that there would be some kind of something special that God would hide from believers unless they went through this special conduit of connection with God. That was a heretical idea that crept in that Jesus was not enough. They would add things like circumcision. You better have your son circumcised. You better follow the dietary laws. Then you can enter into the relationship fully that God has for you. And their heresy was Jesus was not enough. And I, I was thinking about, well, what, what is this connection to, to us? And, and in what way does heresy come from within the church or, or within our own lives? And I think it's this. I think our heresy is that Jesus follows me. That Jesus follows us. We strive and we live for ourselves. For our business, for our work, for our families. And our prayers are centered around, God, help me succeed in the things I want to do. Would you please come with me as I am making my way so God, clear a path for me. And help me do what I want to do. It's almost as if we have made a personal manifest destiny for ourselves. 
and we believe in God and we, we believe that Jesus is our savior, but we can easily believe that this life is about us and that God is our great life coach and wish giver who is helping our dream come true. I think that creeps into us because there's such a pull in us to be self-made people. To get her done. As Mater would say. So whether we're like the Colossians or today where there's there's a focus on, on our agenda, we need truth to help us with this issue. So we're going to look at a, a very special passage in the scriptures. This passage is so unique in the New Testament that it is, that it is originally thought to be one of the earliest hymns that was sung by the church. It is the central statement of Jesus' identity. Because the truth is, is that Jesus' identity demands we follow him. There's no other word to use in that statement other than it is demanded from him to follow him because of who he is. This is a truth that can, that can save us from tarnishing the gospel and tarnishing our perspective that life is about us. And there's no greater passage than this that tells us who Christ is. Let me read this passage out of Colossians 1. We're going to start in verse 15. I'm going to read through verse 23, and then we'll go back through it verse by verse. But listen to this passage. And verses 15 through 20 are this Christian hymn. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything... He might have the supremacy for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Let's look at the truth. And simply, the first thing that we see about Jesus' identity is that Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is 
God. He is not a good teacher. He is not a good man. He is not a great philosopher or religious zealot. He is God. Let's look at verse 15. Passage says that he is the image of the invisible God. As man, we were made in the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. He is the physical representation of our God. So not only through Christ do we see who God is and know who God is, but it's also through him that he reveals who God is to us. He is the mirror image reflection of God, but he also is the display for all to see. He is the image of God. He has made what was invisible visible. He says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. This word firstborn needs some explanation because there are groups now who come to our doors and who knock to tell us about a new truth, a new perspective. And the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus Christ was the first created thing, that he was born as God's son, that God formed Jesus. And they'll use this verse to say, do you see? He is the firstborn. What else could that mean other than he was born and created? When they come to your door and they say that we are talking about the same Jesus, we are not. This passage will show us that Jesus is not the created. He is the creator. If something has been made, it cannot be the maker. And we'll look at that. So what does this mean? Why use a word firstborn? Firstborn in their culture was a place of right. It was a birthright that if I were the firstborn in my family that I had a position of power and authority in my family. That if my parents were to pass on as the firstborn, it would fall to me to be the one in charge, the one responsible, the one who would be sovereign over the family. This is a place of power and sovereignty. He is the firstborn over all creation. Jesus Christ is God. He is supreme over creation. Verse 16 says, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Paul is speaking to this issue that was starting to creep in, that that somehow angels were, were a special gate to God. Jesus said, and John, I am the gate. There's no other mediator to God. And Paul is saying that Jesus created all the spiritual realms, all the physical realm. It was Jesus who was at work in that. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, Caesar was not God. He was not God on earth as was being proclaimed in that day. 
rulers, authorities, all things were created by him and for him. So when we read in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus is there and our God that we worship creating all things. He made Pluto. We took its status away as a planet. But he formed it. We cannot ever stray from the truth that Jesus Christ is God. He's supreme over creation. Verse 17 sums it up. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. This is our God. Jesus Christ. He's supreme over creation. He's also supreme over redemption. Listen to verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Let me stop there. The term head shows up uh, time and time again in the New Testament. And actually on the back of your bulletin or your insert, there is additional study for you to understand who Jesus Christ is. 13 truths from this passage about Christ and the validation of other passages that support it. There you'll find other passages that speak of Jesus being the head of the church, our authority. But then we find the word firstborn again. And this time it's in a different sense. It says he's in the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Now, what does this mean? It means that of those that have passed away, Jesus is the first of most importance who has been raised from the dead. Others were raised to new life before Jesus because he raised them. That he is the first to raise himself. He's the firstborn from among the dead. Why? What is so crucial about his resurrection? It says this, so that in everything he might have the supremacy You may have a version of the Bible that says so that he would be preeminent. That he would be above all things. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the verification and the proof that he is who he claimed to be. He's supreme over all things. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then he is a fool. And so are we for following him. He would be the greatest charlatan the world has ever known. If he pulled the wool over our eyes to claim to be God and to not be. We must be firm in our conviction and our belief about the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Jesus is fully God. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus came... He, he limited himself. He who had no limit chose to step down and become small and vulnerable. To come in the simplest of form, a baby. The creator submitted to the creation to be dependent on a mother and a father. But at no time, even when Jesus came as a baby, did he re- was he released from him being fully God. Yet he chose to limit himself. To only do the things that, that the Father would allow him to do. I can't imagine the restraint that a holy God had to show. Surrounded by so much brokenness. This is what Jesus did because we cannot attain what he stepped down from. He stepped down from holiness and righteousness and purity and power. And in our sin, we were made enemies with God. But Jesus came as our reconciler to make peace. And it says clearly that he did it through the cross. And this is the pure message of the gospel. There's nothing to be added to it. Jesus, the son of God, fully God, became fully man to lay his life down for us, to be the penalty for our sin. And his resurrection shows that he broke the power of sin and death. And that there's new hope and life for those who believe. Jesus Christ is our, he's our rescuer. Earlier in chapter one, it says of Jesus, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Listen to what this passage speaks about what we once were. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Paul could have chosen a number of words to describe human behavior, but he used a very strong Greek word, porneia. It is, it is the most twisted Evil. And this is our human condition. We were enemies of God, twisted in our thinking, in our motives. Verse 22 if you want to circle two words, but now. 
We were once alienated, but now he, Christ, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. There's no accident that Paul said physical body. Do you see what he's trying to do? He's trying to help this new church, this new group of people understand their God, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He came physically because that was another heresy that was rising up that, well, yeah, Jesus was not ever fully man. He was a, he was, he was just a spiritual being and was not like us. That was an early heresy that crept in. And Paul is saying, no, he physically, he came. God came in the flesh and he died for us. He's establishing the bedrock and the roots of the Christian faith in this passage. He did this to present us holy in his sight, that there would be a transfer from us from a place of darkness to a place of light and holiness that we could stand in a new position, secure and saved by our God. It was Christ's work that moved us into this relationship. Jesus Christ is God. He is supreme over creation, supreme over redemption, and he is our rescuer. He is our hope. In this life. Now this passage. Has a very. Misconstrued verse. That we're about to look at. You see he had just said. That you've now. He's now reconciled you by Christ's physical body. Through death to present you holy in his sight. Without blemish. Free from accusation. If you continue in your faith. Established and firm. Not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. There are people who would take this verse to mean that you can lose your salvation. That what has happened to you through Christ is conditional upon you maintaining your faithfulness. And they'll use this verse. It says, if you continue, you can remain holy in his sight and steadfast and without blemish. You got to continue. That is not what this passage teaches us. We're told in Ephesians 1 that when this transfer happens, when we come over here, it says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. When someone places their faith in Jesus Christ, God seals you in that place by his spirit. There's no amount of effort that you can take his holy arms and somehow push them away and slip out back into a previous state and condition. It is a gracious gift of God that once we are saved by faith, we are kept in him. 
It is our position before God. We have assurance that we belong to Jesus. So what does this mean? We have to remember the context. What is at stake? There are things that are coming in to twist and taint and distort and confuse the gospel. The thing that should give people hope was becoming a thing that made burdens on people. Paul is saying, continue in your faith. Established and firm, not moved from the essentials. This, these set of verses, 15 through 20, are so central, they put it in the form of a song that everyone could remember it, that they would not stray and move from the purity and the hope of the gospel. Continue in it, he says. Don't give up. Persist in the things of first importance. You are holy people. Don't distort this. You are without blame and accusation. Don't add something else to Christ. Don't move him to a place where he follows your agenda. Set him in his rightful place and find your agenda in him. Continue in your faith. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is what Paul gave his life for. And in this one verse, verse 23, when I think about what being committed means, being committed to Christ, I see three faith commitments for us to to take. First, that I commit to understand my faith. It was of such importance for the people to know that they wrote it in song. The more I understand, the more rooted and deeply connected to God I am. That when someone knocks on the door and asks a a tricky question, and they'll say, are you sure? Does the Bible really say that? That you can be unmoved and equipped in your faith. The gospel went out. Paul proclaimed that it went to every creature under heaven. That, that I commit to share the gospel. That's a faith commitment that we should make. And then finally, Paul calls himself a servant. That there's a commitment to serve the needs both inside and outside the church. Where Joe will pick up next week. So when we think about the guy that makes the leap... What would a body of believers look like if we all took the jump together? That we said it is about the kingdom of God being advanced. I mean, we'd rather follow Jenny Craig sometimes than Jesus Christ on January 1st. But there's a kingdom to serve and a God and a rescuer to proclaim. This must be our resolution. His identity demands that we follow him. Would you pray with me?
Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our God and that you have rescued us. We ask, Lord, that you would keep us close to you. All we have is the day that you've given us today, January 2nd, to walk after you. Forgive us, Lord, when we relegate you to a place behind us. Forgive us, Lord, when we, we add ideologies or practices in our lives that, that distort the truth of the gospel. May we be a kind of people who commit to understanding you, commit to speaking of you, and commit to serving, laying our lives down inside this place and beyond this place. And Lord, uh, we, we pray this so that you would increase. So use us to that end. May we be resolute in following hard after you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.